Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Well, in Chile, we had this absolutely fascinating election. This is the country that you'll recall back in the 70s. The CIA and uh, Milton Friedman and the Chicago Boys helped General Pinochet overthrow the government and turn it into a, basically a, a, a fascist uh, libertarian state. The son of a Nazi, the ultra-conservative, Jose Antonio Cast, 55, came, uh, went up against a former student activist, a fellow by the name of Gabriel Boric, who's 35 years old. He's a tattooed millennial. And, uh, you know, kind of good news. Uh, well, I, actually, I'll let, you, I'll let our guest tell you all about it. Guillaume Long, a PhD, is a senior policy analyst with CEPR, the Center for Economic and Policy uh, Research. He's uh, formerly, previously, the Minister of Foreign Affairs for the country of Ecuador. And uh, Guillaume, welcome to the program. Hi, thank, thanks, Tom, for having me on the show. It's a great honor, great so, pleasure. Th- thank you. So tell me what happened in Chile over the weekend. Well, I mean, we had a pretty clear win. You just said it. Boric won the elections quite convincingly. I mean, we're on 99.99% of the vote counts, very close to 100. They're just checking a few, a few last ballots that have observations. And he is uh, clearly ahead, uh, you know, 55.8% of the vote in the runoff versus 46.2. So he's winning. He's, uh, the, it's a victory of the left against the, not just the right, not just the conservative right, but against his opponent, Jose Antonio Cast, who is a very right-wing figure, uh, who was sort of a Pinochet nostalgic, who said a lot of things that might, some analysts might consider as sort of neo-fascistic or, you know, extremely, extremely right-wing, a sort of uh, an, uh, someone who admired Donald Trump very much and who sort of modeled his campaign on the campaign of Jair Bolsonaro in, in Brazil. So someone who really be- belongs to that kind of extreme sectors of the right-wing, who was defeated. Um, I think this is, this is good news for Chile. It's good news for Democrats around the world. It's good news for progressives around the world. Um, and it's, it's good news because the margin, the difference between Boric, the winner, and Cast, the loser, is much larger than a lot of polls ha- had anticipated. And many of us feared a very close race. 
Uh, in fact, uh, you know, some people feared that Boric might not win at all. And if he did win, it would be with a very small margin. This is a convincing margin. This is something which obviously gives him, uh, you know, a much sort of a much easier beginning to his presidency for sure. And is well confirms the democratic will of the Chilean people and the fact that he has a mandate to govern uh, according to his progressive and democratic program. So I think all around it's good news. I mean, there are challenges ahead, but it's good news that we got from Chile. There are some who are suggesting, my, myself included, that history tends to you know move back and forth like a pendulum. Obviously, not always identically, but but uh, that we tend to. At least here in the United States, we tend to alternate back and forth between essentially conservative and progressive governments. Um, we've been in the conservative Reagan era since 1980. Prior to that, we were in the progressive uh, FDR New Deal era since 1932. Prior to that, it was the conservative, you know, uh, uh, you know, back to 1920. I'm, I'm forgetting the president's name, but in any case, the is that what's happening in South in, in South and Central America? Or and I realize that's a huge area. Uh, you were the former foreign minister of uh, or the minister of foreign affairs in Ecuador. Uh, we're talking about Chile. Are those kinds of are, is this is this a? Let me rephrase this. Is this a battle between two people where personality won, or has there been a shift in public opinion in Chile? And is this happening in the wider region? With regard to abandoning or 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 uh, repudiating right wingism and and uh, you know the, the so-called neoliberalism and embracing something that looks like what the Europeans call social democracy. Yeah, so I think that's a great question. I mean, I think there are two kind of answers to that. One more macro, more regional. For sure, we're seeing in Latin America a return of progressives and of the left in general to power. Uh, the first decade and a half, as you know, the first decade and a half of this century was marked by what a lot of analysts call the pink tide. So a number of left of center, some quite radically left of center governments in power in Latin America. And then from roughly, I mean, obviously it depends on the country, but from roughly 2014, 2015 onwards, you see a political fatigue, an erosion of the popularity of the left in a number of countries. There's also commodities decline, which creates economic problems for Latin America. And you see the return of the right. Now, I think the right got it badly wrong in Latin America, they applied the good old recipes of the near, you know, the good old uh, sort of IMF and World Bank-led recipes of the Washington Consensus of the 1980s and 1990s, were aggressively neoliberal. And that's not necessarily what people wanted. You know, they just had a decade and a half of reduction of poverty, reduction of inequality, uh, of um, important growth, GDP growth, but also in some countries, constituent processes with civil rights uh, processes with more rights for more people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And when neoliberalism came back, and particularly with the aggressiveness with which it was implemented from 2015 onwards, well, um, the right didn't do well. So from 2018 onwards, I mean, again, it depends on the country. The, the victory of uh, of the left of center candidate Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador in Mexico was very important, and then the recuperation of Argentina on behalf of the leftist parents was very important. And then we saw last year, uh, after a coup in Bolivia, the left coming back to power, and more recent victories in Peru, in Honduras, and elsewhere. So we're seeing that pendulum swing back to the left we see, that you described. 
And in fact, the rule of the right in Latin America will have been quite quite short-lived. It will have been one mandate, most most uh, right-wingers not being able to re-elect themselves. So that's kind of the Latin American macro story. But there's also a Chilean story, because this is a, a victory that has to be contextualized in Chile's history. Chile was the laboratory of neoliberalism. It was done through an authoritarian way, through a military dictatorship led by a terrible man called Augusto Pinochet. And uh, it was the first, it was the most aggressive place where, where, where neoliberalism was implemented. And despite democratization in 1990s and early 2000s, and clearly uh, Chile is a democracy today, a lot of the legacy of neoliberalism, that inequality, that hyper-stratified society in terms of social classes um, has, has remained, has, has remained unscathed. And what we've seen in Chile since 2019 onwards, and you could go back to the large student protests of a decade ago, but particularly from 2019 onwards, are these huge protests against an economic model, uh, people taking to the streets. So I think Boric is also a product of that new wave of democratization, which isn't just democratizing politics, as in, you know, elections and parliamentarism and not going to jail when you, you know, freedom of expression and not going to jail when you say what you think, but also the democratization of the socioeconomic base of Chile, which is, which is what remains to be done in Chile, you know, to really move away from this really uh, unequal society and uh, which a lot of a sort of apartheid state of rich and poor uh, which uh, which Boric is inheriting uh, today um, so i think this is this is really uh, a very important um, i mean that kind of democratization is very important and it's a huge challenge that Boric faces today yeah it's it's uh, it's a remarkable thing and and i think it's a really really good sign i think it's a good sign for democracies all over the world Guillaume Long, a senior policy analyst with the Center for Economic and Policy Research. www.cepr.net is the website. Uh, Guillaume's uh, Twitter handle is G-U-I-L-L-A-U-M-E-L-O-N-G with an ad at the beginning. Guillaume, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. My pleasure. We'll be right back. Stick around. Tom Harvin here with you. By the way, I <laughs> remember all the departments in Orwell's 1984, if you ever read the book. It's such a dark book. You know, I missed when I was in high school, I just did the Cliff Notes version for a report, and so I never actually read it. And I was in Australia back in 2000. I was doing a tour all around the country on uh, ADHD. And I thought, hey, it's a great opportunity to read Orwell's book because I read myself to sleep every night. And so I, I got a copy when I first arrived in Sydney. And by the third or fourth day, I was about three quarters of the way through the book, and I was having these really dark dreams. I mean, it was just, it, it's like, uh, of course, you, you know, when you're 12 hours out of sync and, and experiencing jet lag, you get these vivid dreams anyway. But I had to stop reading it. <laughs> I just, it's like, whoa. But anyhow, so there were all these departments, right, in 1984 in that book. And it looks like Ron DeSantis wants to do the same thing. This uh, Bob Brigham writing over at rawstory.com. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis wants the state to invest in a massive new effort. It's called the New Office of Election Crime and Security. The Miami Herald reports, likely the first of its kind in any state, it would give DeSantis and future governors unprecedented authority over election-related investigations. Oh, isn't that sweet? Yes, it's called the Office of Election Crime and Security, and we... 
Ron DeSantis, we and the Republicans get to decide what is a crime and what constitutes security. The Miami Herald report goes on to say it would employ 45 investigators, have a $5.7 million budget, and a broad mandate to look into violations of state election law and election, quote, irregularities, end quote. The newspaper explains the new proposal came after DeSantis faced, quote, accusations from the GOB base that he still isn't doing enough to support former President Donald Trump's baseless claims of voter fraud. Right. This is amazing. DeSantis has been called out by a Tallahassee billboard and threatened with a primary challenge by Roger Stone. It's incredible. Meanwhile, three Republicans in the villages, remember the villages, the place where they were doing the Trump parades with their little golf carts, have been busted for uh, voter fraud. But those are not the ones that the Republicans want to go after. Instead, they want to go after that woman in, in Texas, Crystal, what was her last name? The black woman who was given five years in prison for voting, voting illegally because she had just gotten out of prison. She was a felon and she didn't realize that in Texas felons can't vote. And in fact, she wasn't sure. So she cast a provisional ballot so that they would double check it before they counted it and tell her if she could legally vote. And they did double check it. And then they went out and arrested her. I mean, it's just, this is, but she was a Democrat. She was black. In the case of the villages, I'm willing to bet none of those Republicans who double voted for Donald Trump once in Florida and once by, by mail in their home states, because these are snowbirds, I'm willing to bet that none of them are going to go to jail. What say you? You think? So, anyway, there's, there's a lot going on right now. Um, Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind? Hey, not too much, Tom. I called to comment on Joe Manchin. But real quick, I wanted to say thank you for that, you know, the guest that talked about Chile. Yeah. You know, Jose Antonio Cass, the guy that lost, you know, he, he, he has complimented. Yeah, he's complimented Pinochet. But you have to remember what paved the way for Pinochet. There was this guy, uh, Rene, General Rene Schneider. He was assassinated um, basically on the permission of Henry Kissinger. And he was assassinated because he um, wanted to pass a law making the Chilean army apolitical. He wanted to make it apolitical. Mm. Wow. And we just had 30 generals in the United States of America sign off on a memorandum calling for the, you know, the, an apolitical military. They are concerned about all the military members involved in the January 6th insurrection. Yeah, okay? and, and, and it's, that, a, it's a very real and legitimate concern, Dave. And, and this has been, is. this is, I mean, you know, um, Mikey uh, uh, Weinstein first started pointing out with the Air Force Academy's indoctrination, you know, uh, Christian indoctrination of their cadets, when his son went into the Air Force Academy, he started yelling about that. And the deeper he dug, the more he found that it wasn't just Christianity that these people were being evangelized by. It was right-wing political worldviews and white supremacy that they're being evangelized by in our military. And I agree with you. I think that, you know, having, a, having a, a, literally a law of some sort would be a really good idea to prevent that kind of thing from happening. Thank you, Dave. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. 
Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Kendall in Oakland, California. Hey, Kendall, what's on your mind today? I'm doing fine. Um, hey, I was just wondering, instead of messing around with the whole idea of turning in Washington, D.C. into a state, why don't we just change again? You know, we know we did it with the 17th Amendment, how we vote for Senate. Why don't we just vote for all the senators at large? Um, you know, like city councils do that. You have an out-large seat in a city council. Just have all the senators voted in at large. You could have 100 California senators then. You would have to amend the Constitution. I'm not opposed to that. So would you if you did turn D.C. into a state? No, you don't have to amend the Constitution and turn D.C. into a state. In fact, you can do it with a simple majority in the House and the Senate. That's all it takes to accept a state. But in order to amend the Constitution, you have to have a two-thirds majority in both the House and the Senate, uh, and you have to have three-quarters of the well, states well, sign off on well, it. But, but, but turning D.C. into the state's only going to give you two more senators. What and that's better than none. Trump voters turn, turn another other state, and we, we flip a couple more senators. Then you're in the same boat you are now. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, I, you're right, but... Right now, you are faced, the Democrats are faced with the possibility of either A, making D.C. a state and getting two Democratic senators, or not. I mean, they can try to, they can put forward a law that says, hey, uh, we're going to make Senate, you know, or an amendment to the Constitution that says, hey, we're going to, you know, have uh, the, the senators elected at large. But, uh, you know, good luck with that. I mean, there, there, there have been some constitutional amendments that have languished over 100 years. Actually, there's been one the language over 100 years before it was passed. Um, you know, some have been passed quickly, but typically it takes years. Alvin in Greeley, Colorado. Hey, Alvin, what's on your mind? Um, hi, Tom. Merry Christmas. Um, I wanted to talk about Joe Manchin. Um, you said that you think he's going to flip parties, or he might. Uh, there's an article on Alternet that he's basically threatening to do that, that angry Democrats could, quote, push him out of the party. And I think that's what he intends to do. He's going to flip parties. Uh, I read in the paper 
who's been meeting regularly with Mitch McConnell. Yeah, he has so, been, and he's taken over a million dollars from uh, donors who are typically just donors to Republicans. Uh, my guess is if he's going to change parties, um, either he's going to do it right after the first of the year and, and, you know, like just drop a bomb on the Democrats and say, okay, you don't even control the Senate anymore. Or if Republicans regain control of the Senate, and this is the, I, I think this is a more likely scenario because I think Joe Manchin is a, is a, 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 a relatively smart politician, a canny public, politician, let's say. After the first, after the, after the 2022 election, you know, a, a year from now, if the Republicans get control of the Senate, that would be, in my mind, when Joe Manchin flips parties, um, because then he would be joining the winning side. I guess if he did it right now, he would be joining the winning side as well, because he would be creating the winning side. The problem that Joe Manchin has, if he becomes a Republican, is that he's not a Trumpy. You know, he's not Trumpy enough for the Republican Party, and he would face a Trumpy Republican. Uh, challenger for a primary if he wants to run again. Now, the flip side of that is that Manchin is like 72, 73 years old, and so there's a very good chance, I mean, he's going to be 75, 76 by the time he's up for re-election, that he's not going to run for re-election. So, you know, all of these things, uh, all of these considerations uh, kind of concatenate, uh, meaning that, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Well, Ken in West Lynn, hey, Ken, what's up? Yeah, Tom, I'm thinking, you know, the Dems should lobby Michigan, Ohio, Missouri, Kentucky. These are states where Ford is planning to build and spend hundreds of billions of dollars to build electric cars. And they're not going to do that in a down economy. And so if they play games like that. And they may not do it as aggressively as you're discussing if there are no subsidies for those cars. We are subsidizing fossil fuels and fossil fuel uh, using products to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And if we don't start subsidizing electric vehicles, you know, it's, it's just gonna slow everything down. Well, yeah, and the, the whole idea, I mean, this is what, you know, Michigan and Ohio, I mean, those are big players in the auto industry, Kentucky and Missouri as well. Yep. And people don't understand that. They don't get it, I don't believe. Well, th- I, I, I think you're right, Ken, and this is why, uh, you know, I've been saying for a couple of months now that I, I didn't, I, I haven't felt like the Biden administration has been doing a good enough job publicly selling these products, essentially, you know, the, the, these, this legislation. Job. Right. And, and the reason that they've been doing a crummy job is because they've been relying on the backroom strategy which Biden is so good at. I mean, he was, he was in the Senate almost 30 years. He, he knows how to work the back room. But now he's been dealing with a guy who is disingenuous. Um, Joe Manchin has been apparently lying to Biden's face, at least according to Biden. And so, you know, that backroom strategy only works if you can trust the people on your side and you can trust the people you're working with. And, and Manchin has made it clear, apparently, that, that Biden can't trust him. So now, frankly, the question is, will Biden use a public strategy the way Trump did for four years and just get out there on a daily basis and start pounding on this stuff and calling names and taking names and, taking, and kicking ass? Or is he going to double down on his Senate strategy? And if so, what are his options? I mean, how many Republicans does he think he can pull over? We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer by Morris Pearl, Erica Payne, and the Patriotic Millionaires. 
This is uh, from page 55 in the chapter, How to Rig an Economy by Morris. And it's uh, titled, Their Money Versus Your Sweat, a Case Study. Say that two people, we'll call them Doug and Carrie Workhard, both worked full-time last year, putting in 40 hours every week. Together, they made $100,000, just above average for a two-earner household. They subtract the $24,800 standard deduction and are left with $75,200 in taxable income. Under the new Republican tax code, the workhards would pay around $8,629 in federal income taxes, in addition to FICA taxes on, of $7,650 on all of their income, with 6.2% going to Social Security and 1.45% going to Medicare. Now, let's say two other people, we'll call them Ronald and Melanie Slump, sit around all day playing golf and sipping strawberry daiquiris on a beach somewhere. One day after reapplying sunscreen, Ronald clicked a button on the couple's E-Trade account and sold some stock they've owned for a while. Let's say they made $100,000 in profit from the sale of that stock and lived off that all year. In our current tax plan, capital gains income is not subject to FICA taxes, so the slumps would take the standard deduction of $24,800 and be left with $75,200 of taxable income, just like the work hards. The slumps should pay around the same amount as the work hards, right? Well, wrong. Under our current tax system, the slumps will pay $0 in taxes on that income. Our tax system does not tax the first $80,000 of investment income after deductions, but it does tax the first $80,000 of ordinary income after deductions. The work cards work hard all year trying to get rich while the slumps, who are already rich, sat on the beach sipping strawberry daiquiris. Yet at the end of that year, the slumps are $8,629 richer, 16,000 if you count FICA taxes, than the work cards. Pause here for a minute and consider whether or not that seems fair to you. One couple worked, the other couple got drunk on the beach. The drunk people end the year richer than the working people. You think the difference in our tax treatment of their money serves a legitimate purpose in our society? Let's take it a little farther. Let's say the slumps switch to Mai Tais, and rather than making $100,000 in profit selling their stock, they sell enough to make $400,000. It was a heavy pour. The slumps will again take the $24,800 standard deduction and be left with $375,200 of taxable income. They will again pay 0% tax on the first $80,000 and will pay 15% on the remaining $295,200 for a total tax bill of around $44,280. The work cards also had a good year. They got new jobs, two weeks with paid vacation, and they made a total of $400,000, $200,000 each, each working 40 hours a week for 50 weeks. They'll pay FICA taxes of around $22,800 in total. Like the slumps, they took their $24,800 standard deduction, and they're left with a taxable income of $375,200. But unlike the slumps, they will pay 10% on the first $19,750, 12% on the next $60,500, 22% on the next $90,800, 24% on the next $155,500, and 32% on the remaining roughly $48,600 of the total tax bill of about $82,095 in income taxes plus $22,800 in FICA taxes or $104,970 altogether. Two families make the exact same amount of money, one by working full-time, 
the other by sipping cocktails and pushing a button on their E-Trade account. The cocktail sippers end the year $60,000 richer than the working people. Why? Well, the tax code treats income differently depending on how you make it. There is one set of rates for money you get from a job, it's called ordinary income, and another set of rates for money you make on long-term investments, such as stocks, it's called capital gains, an option available only to people who already have enough money to be able to invest. Our elected officials may talk endlessly about the value of a hard day's work and the nobility of labor, but our tax code is deliberately designed to reward capital income over labor income. If you work for a living, you should understand this one thing about the tax code. A dollar made off a rich investor's money is worth more than a dollar made off your sweat. Think about that for a minute. If you're working, you keep less of every dollar you make compared with someone who is not working but living off their investments. If you think that's okay, well, okay. But if you don't, you should talk to your elected leaders about it, whichever party they happen to be a member of. There is no valid reason why investors should pay lower tax rates on their income than people who work pay on theirs. I often hear the argument that investors need an extra incentive to invest and the tax breaks provide that, but investors already have all the incentive they need to invest. They make money on their investments. The book, Tax the Rich by Morris Pearl, Erica Payne, and the Patriotic Millionaires. The subtitle, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. And welcome back. Liz in Los Angeles. Hey, Liz, what's on your mind today? Hi, good morning. Good morning. Earlier, we were talking about the use of language. And the thing that's always bothered me is the way they talk about the Republicans and the tax subsidies. They shouldn't call it subsidies. They should call it welfare because these people don't need the damn, excuse me, money. And, <laughs> I'm with you. You know, like you're saying, language counts. Yep. And call it welfare for the rich. Yep. I'm with you, Liz. I am completely with you. And also the welfare that we're giving to the red states. You know, you've got Kentucky taking $3 for every dollar it sends to the federal government. Not so here in Oregon or California. You know, we're getting back Absolutely. pennies on the dollar. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I so agree with you. Yeah. Very, very, very well said. Liz, thank you very much for that. Joe in Olympia, Washington. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind today? Yeah. Good show. Thank you. Uh, I have an idea that I've had for some time, and I think it has legs. And um, you're the first person I'm going to share with sort of nationally. I think that every political donation there should be a small amount of that donation, you know, one half of a percent, some very small amount, but that would go into a fund that would deal with all the issues around making our election system work, whether impacted by the pandemic, impacted by all these Republican laws, you know, and reducing the number of uh, uh, voting machines so people have to stand in line forever. There would be a significant amount of money that would come from this. It would be very similar to how people pay a certain portion of their airline ticket to make sure the entire air system works and security and, and air traffic controllers. So I wouldn't call it a tax. It's a fee, and it would only be levied on anyone who made a donation. So if you didn't make a donation, it's not a tax. You're not going to have to pay anything. But if you make a donation, the assumption is you expect the system to work fairly. Of course, that's not really what's going on, but that's what you're, you know, if you're making this big donation or whatever donation. So that's the idea. And I think that uh, I don't think it would ever get through a legislature but I do think it would work at a state level, at a state that had a uh, referendum system. 
mm-hmm. uh, because um, I think people would right away say, yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's a very small amount. It's fair. It goes yeah. every, you know, it doesn't. You realize the Federal anything. Election Commission does what you're talking about, or at least is supposed to. The problem is that it's set up with a board and, you know, an even number of three and three um, Republicans, three Democrats, and and the, either side can just stall anything. And so it's been about seven years since the Federal Election Commission did any, or six years, did any serious effort, uh, you know, to, to, to even enforce the laws that are on the books. But I, I would say that the thing to do is to stop having the FEC be led by six partisans and instead have it led by a nonpartisan director who's independent of presidential terms and is right. just some kind of an election wonk from a university or something who is just totally into, into uh, fulfilling our election laws. I mean, there were so many crimes committed during the Trump administration that had to do with election law that never, right. never, you know, they, uh, they would get brought to the FEC and they would die there. Now, you're saying here's a way to fund it. You know, it's already got a funding mechanism. The problem is it's paralyzed by the fact that there's three Republicans on its on its uh, oversight committee or whatever they call, you know, it's, its leadership. And uh, that needs to be fixed. That that would be a good one for Congress. I don't I don't know if any of these. I, I believe the original H.R. 1 addressed the Federal Election Commission, but I don't think that's going to pass. So, Joe, thank you. That was a good one. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Somebody had asked me about West Virginia internal politics, and I'd mentioned Troy Miller's newsletter. It's blueridgebreakdown.substack.com. For any West Virginia news, it's worth checking out. The other point that I wanted to make, and then I'll pick up your phone calls here, is uh, this article in Politico. The headline, Democrats riled by Spanish language radio attacks on Kamala Harris. The Republican Party down in Florida is apparently, they're not responding to inquiries from Politico, but is apparently running phone banks to call into Spanish language stations and trash 
Harris and Biden. Now, frankly, I mean, think about this for a minute. If somebody called into this show to trash Harris and Biden, how far do you think they'd get? I would either eat their lunch on the air or Joyce would very politely tell them, eh, that's a little off topic right now. In other words, it's not going to happen. Or if it does, there's going to be some significant pushback. So if somebody's calling into these Hispanic, these Spanish language radio stations in, in Florida and trashing Harris and Biden, and the hosts are letting it on the air, it's because they're right-wing stations. I have been yelling about this for years, that the Democrats, the, 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 one of the main reasons why, and this goes literally back to Reagan's presidential years when he ended the, the Fairness Doctrine, and then in 96 when Bill Clinton blew everything up with the Telecommunications Act of 96 and ended the ownership rules for media, that the right-wingers built an electronic media infrastructure that is so powerful that it made George W. Bush president in 2000, along with a little help from the Supreme Court. It made Donald Trump president in 2016, along with a little help from Russia. It, it arguably got George Herbert Walker Bush elected the first time in 1992. And if Democrats don't get their act together and build out a progressive radio and television infrastructure, we're screwed. And then on top of that, what I've been pointing out for the last couple of years is now the conservatives are doing it in Spanish. And again, the Democrats are like, oh, yeah, we just passed good legislation. We don't, you know, we don't need to be manipulating people through the media and changing opinions. That's not our work. That's, you leave that to the Republicans. Come on, Democrats, get with the program. It's time to develop progressive Spanish language media. Now, I don't speak Spanish well. In fact, I don't speak Spanish functionally at all. I have two years of an elementary school. That's it. <laughs> I couldn't do it. But there are Spanish-speaking progressives out there. There's a world full of them. So if uh, any high net worth individuals are within the, the, the range of my voice who want to start doing English or Spanish language radio, let me know. Nicholas in San Cristobal, Mexico. Hey, Nicholas, what's on your mind today? Tom, first of all, happy holidays to you and Thank Louise you. and your kids and all of the friends you love most dearly and to your wonderful staff for making this all possible. Well, thank you, and happy holidays to, to you and yours, Nicholas. Thank you. Thank you very much, Seth. I appreciate that, truly. Um, a thought. I object a bit. I don't object to the idea of uh, trying to get left we say left-wing radio channels to counteract the right. But I think we're so far behind at this point that there's almost no way to catch up with them. The money is so enormous that they managed to squeak out of their... And now they've got to set up so it makes its own money. So these systems are self-generating, right. self-perpetuating. It, it is. It's like one of those... Um, foxes literally... Ever-ready you know, ever little machines. Yeah, that, foxes spinning off billions of profits. Machine. Yeah. Right. Well, what I do think is this. And I don't think it's an impossibility. I think that people who care should begin a national boycott of all companies that advertise on right-wing radio channels. That's been because true. nothing speaks more loudly than money in America, right? Yeah. Nothing. Well, two thoughts on that, Nicholas. First of all, when 
uh, you know, I've, I've been in this business 18 years. Uh, I mean, I, my uh, association with radio goes way back before that, but I've been doing this show for 18 years. And about 15 years ago, 13 years ago, something like that, there was that big movement to boycott Rush Limbaugh. He had said finally something just so egregious, as I recall, it was one of his comments about rape or, or Hillary Clinton or something. It was some misogynistic thing. And, it was about rape, yeah. Yeah, and, and there was this movement to, to defund Rush Limbaugh's show by boycotting his advertisers. Um, right. At that time, I was on Air America Radio and yeah. we were funded by advertisers. And what happened yeah. was the, the, the advertisers and the advertising agencies who handle radio advertising got together and they put together a list of a little over 100 companies who did not want to be on Rush Limbaugh's show. And okay. many of those companies have been advertising on our show and helping provide the money that kept Air America Radio going. Excellent. When, when that list came out, those companies said, we don't want to be, it didn't just say we don't want to be on Rush Limbaugh's show. They said, we don't want to be on any political talk radio. And, oh, our, and, and our revenue dropped by more than half over that year. That was one of the, that year, I almost didn't, I, I took very little salary that year. I mean, well, we don't know. want that to happen, but so, surely there's a way around it. There, there is no way around it. Every time one of these boycott efforts comes out to boycott right-wing talk radio, and it had, and it gets some some mileage. Suddenly, our advertisers start backing off because they, they they don't want to be seen as taking sides. So they just say, "Screw it! We will put our advertising dollars yeah, in music radio or sports saying. radio." Number one. Number two. I have never seen any of these boycotts actually change anybody's behavior. Coors Beer, when gay people boycotted Coors Beer Company back in the, when was that, early 70s, it sure changed Coors Beer right away. Yeah, but Coors Beer was not right-wing talk radio. No, but it was the power of money talking. Oh, yeah, sure, for a brand, for one individual brand. But you're talking about trying to influence or trying to hurt um, you know, an entire industry, essentially, right-wing talk radio. No, well, then, then let's then let's think and about it's not going to work. Way, then. Why not go after an individual brand as we went, I as a gay man, as we went after Coors? Surely it can be done. You would have, you know, if you go after that brand and say, stop funding, stop funding right-wing radio, but keep funding left-wing radio, it's, you know, it, it, that's, that's a, a confused message. I think that, you know, it, what's... Nicholas, I, I would like to push back on your initial assertion, which is okay. that they're so far ahead of us we can never catch up. They are way ahead of us. But what I'm, what I'm sensing right. is that things are changing so rapidly. I mean, just think of the last couple years of the Obama administration. If anybody yeah. had come along and said, you know, we want to give every, every young family in America who's got, a, who's got kids uh, 300 bucks a right. month for their kids. We want to give right. uh, seniors dental and, and uh, hearing aids and eyeglasses. We want to, you know, we, we, we right. want to spend a half a trillion dollars on saving the world from climate change. During the Obama administration, the yeah. Obama administration would have said, oh, I'm sorry, the, the, that is way out of the boundaries Can't of, be of, of acceptable right, conversation. Right. You have gone too far. Exactly. Now, now it's the general Now it's the norm. It's, Things are right. changing. We are entering a progressive era, and the conservative era is hanging on, 
and fighting hard and yelling and screaming and squealing and kicking and throwing tantrums, but they are dying and our day is coming, Nicholas. I'm telling you. Well, then, but, but, well, then where are we going to get this left-wing money from? This well, that's, that's, where I'm speaking, that's where I'm speaking to people on the left and saying, if you want, if you want to actually see this new era translated into legislation, translated into politics, we need to build a progressive media in Infrastructure. We've got the seeds of one, but we've got to build it up. What? Nicholas, I got to run. Know whether you, I don't know whether you depressed me or it uh, made me feel better. But. <laughs> okay, hopefully better. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book club book for today is Talk Radio's America by Brian Rosenwald, subtitled How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Then Took Over the United States. This is from the introduction. August 1, 1988 marked the beginning of the long road to President Donald Trump. But even political junkies took little notice of the fateful events that unfolded that day as a failed disc jockey and former Kansas City Royals executive named Rush Hudson Limbaugh III made his national radio debut. Only a small audience tuned in. So poorly commemorated was the moment that we don't even know how many stations broadcast day one of Limbaugh's syndicated program. Limbaugh claims the show began on 56 affiliates, while other counts range from 57 and 87. From the beginning, the show was brash, entertaining, controversial, and boundary-pushing. Before Limbaugh, this sort of programming did not exist outside major cities. In 1983, there were just 59 talk radio stations nationwide, and the program on many of these stations, those stations consisted of advice shows, state interviews, and caller-driven discussions of everything from neighborhood schools to abominable snowmen. Most talk radio programming focused on local concerns, and most of the industry's stars, such as Larry King and Sally Jesse Raphael, had left-of-center views but rarely shared them. At the time of Limbaugh's national debut, talk radio had negligible political impact. In talk radio hotbeds such as Boston, hosts might influence local and statewide policy debates, especially on visceral issues such as seatbelt laws. But talk radio was not a partisan force, and it had no role in national politics. In fact, the wall-to-wall conservative political talk stations that dominate the AM airwaves today were impossible until 1987, thanks to a regulation called the Fairness Doctrine. That year, however, the Federal Communications Commission eliminated the policy, which required broadcasters of opinionated programming on controversial issues to offer an array of viewpoints. In this more permissive environment, Limbaugh would go on to revolutionize the radio business. In doing so, he helped unintentionally to spawn a major new political player. Within a decade, the broadcast format he inaugurated aired on more than a thousand stations and kept millions company as they commuted, worked, and shouted back at their radios. It took just a few years before conservative talk radio began to influence national politics and public policy. That influence only grew throughout the decades as the business changed. Over the course of the 1990s and early 2000s, the number of nationally syndicated talk shows rose dramatically, and the content of talk radio programs became increasingly political and conservative. Liberal pundits and some scholars agree on the broad outlines of the story. Conservative station executives conspiring with their Republican allies built a format modeled on Limbaugh's program, and thousands of Limbaugh wannabes cropped up all over the country. Executives, hosts, and politicians turned talk radio into an appendage of the Republican Party, using the platform to get Republicans elected and advance the party's agenda. 
The success of talk radio led to the development of partisan and ideological cable news networks, and some hosts complemented their radio shows with primetime cable programs. Eventually, this content found a home in the new digital sphere, with equally strident cheerleaders proliferating on blogs and other online publications. This narrative makes sense, especially to liberals. After all, many conservative media executives and their corporate political action committees donate to Republican candidates, and most hosts champion conservative candidates and causes. This narrative is wrong. In reality, the story of talk radio's emergence as a popular conservative format and the impact it had on American politics weaves together two distinct complex tales. Neither has anything to do with a conspiracy to create a media servant of the Republican Party. The first describes how talk radio spread across America in the process saving AM radio from financial ruin. Limbaugh had no intention of affecting elections or legislation and no inkling that he could. Nor did any of his early successors. The executives who gave these hosts a chance also had no interest in political outcomes. Hosts and their bosses were in business. They wanted to captivate listeners and make money, and they discovered, essentially by accident, that conservative political talk in the mouth of an entertaining personality achieved this. Conservative hosts had strong opinions, but their primary goal was, and still is, financial gain. And it is because they realized financial gain that more and more stations invested in their style and content while divesting from competing formats. The second story concerns talk radio's transformation after 1995 into an almost entirely conservative and doctrinaire medium that eventually spawned successors in other media, took over the Republican Party, and reshaped it in hosts and listeners' image. Limbaugh was a great innovator, but he didn't change American media and politics all at once or on his own. In conservative talk radio's early days, hosts shared stations with liberal talkers and apolitical programs. There was not an immediate sense that conservative radio was the future, either. But gradually, its success snowballed thanks to trial and error in the radio business regulatory changes, political events, happenstance, and most importantly, listener behavior. Hosts also got a boost from marginalized conservative Republican politicians who realized that talk radio would enable them to circumnavigate the mainstream media and deliver their message directly to voters. The book, Talk Radio's America. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back, Tom Harvin. Here with you. Uh, you'll recall I've I've said that you know the whole thing around Mansion is kind of a good news, bad news scenario, depending on how how Democrats play this. Let me share with you how the right wing billionaires are viewing this. This is from Freedom Works. I'm on their mailing list. It's from Adam Brandon. He's the president, the CEO, of uh, or president of of Freedom Works. And I, I just got an email from him. It's asking for money, as, as they usually do. He, he wants $20.22, uh, a generous contribution. And they need this so that they can maintain the illusion of being a gra grassroots organization. But FreedomWorks was you know, one of the original front groups for the, uh, for the, for the right-wing billionaire, petro-billionaire network. 
And so he writes, Thomas, you probably heard reports that Senator Joe Manchin allegedly just killed President Biden's Build Back Broke agenda. This is what, how they refer to it. They call it Build Back Broke. On an appearance on Fox News Sunday, Senator Manchin stated he'd be a big no on this bill. And, you know, then he goes on to note media elites, left-wing senators, President Biden are all on the attack against Senator Manchin to force him to change his mind. And, uh, you know, he talks about Schumer and, um, and, and then he says, so, Thomas, we can't stop, start celebrating just yet. You see, unless Senator Manchin is planning on switching parties, he can't oppose the Biden administration 100% of the time. That's why I'm afraid this move on Build Back Broke may make it even more likely that Senator Manchin does the left's bidding on the filibuster and votes to ram their election takeover scheme into law. You'll recall the, you know, the, the whole thing about the uh, Freedom to Vote Act, which Joe Manchin is a co-sponsor of. These guys, they refer to it as the election takeover scheme of the Democrats. Continuing. Following this move to publicly oppose Build Back Broke, Senator Manchin will be looking to win back some of the good graces from President Biden and Senate Majority Leader Schumer. That's what makes the threat, Adam Brandon writes, Freedom Works, that's what makes the threat of some kind of deal emerging to go around the filibuster to pass the so-called voting rights legislation so great. Even if Senator Kirsten Sinema holds to what she has said and doesn't budge on the filibuster to pass the election takeover bills, all it would take is for Senator Manchin to bring one more Republican on board. Senator Manchin has been meeting with Republican Senators Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski in an effort to come to some sort of deal on, quote, voting rights. And then he goes through a rant about, you know, what the so-called voting rights bill will do and and, uh, you know, force organizations like FreedomWorks to publicly disclose our donors so Antifa radicals can have a target list to go after. <laughs> right. Anyhow, so he continues in the letter. He says, so what we are really talking about here is rigging future elections to favor the Democrats. Wait, is the phrase the pot calling the kettle black come to mind? Anyhow, so what we are really talking about here is rigging future elections to favor the Democrats. And their plan is to rig the Senate to get around the filibuster to pass it. That is exactly why the left wants so badly to pass this election takeover scheme. They know it'll help them win future elections. By the way, yes, it's not an election takeover scheme. Honest elections, fair elections, actually, you know, paper ballot, every ballot counted elections, elections where Republican secretaries of state can't just randomly throw people off the voting rolls because they happen to live in neighborhoods that are heavily Democratic. Yes, it'll help the Democrats. Uh, or let's say it, it'll stop the Republicans from trying. So anyhow, he, he goes on. Exact, this is exactly why the left wants so badly to pass this election takeover scheme. They know it'll help them win future elections. Senator Manchin does not enjoy being viciously attacked by his own party. He believes that if he can deliver them a win here on voting, they will forgive him for going against them on Build Back Broke. Of course, we know as soon as the left gains more ground by getting around the filibuster for their election takeover bill, they will keep pushing toward complete elimination of the filibuster so they can push through their entire radical socialist agenda. Yes, Adam, that's the plan. And I'd love to see it. That's obviously not radical or socialist. It is what the vast majority of Americans want, but it's clearly not what the right-wing billionaires want. So... Anyhow, just thought you would find that interesting and perhaps enlightening, that the right is quite frightened of Joe Manchin right now. Ron in Berrien Springs, Michigan. Hey, Ron, what's up? Tom, you know, before I get to Manchin, because you kind of took the, kind of the sting out of my Manchin comment, but what President Biden should do 
as far as the infrastructure bill. He should go on there and say that I especially want to uh, put in my infrastructure bill storm uh, protection bunkers to be built in all the states that uh, have uh, storm uh, the tornado uh, threat. And, of course, now it's every state in the union that has that threat. But But by doing that, that would show that, you know, the Democrats want to save the lives of even people who don't want to support them. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it may help, but it, it just may keep keep them alive longer so they can civil war us. And, but the thing about Manchin, what I, the Sackler drug epidemic happened when Manchin was governor. And I'm not saying that Manchin was uh, doing anything wrong, but there was so much money spread around in bribes and everything else. And we know his, his children who are in... Uh, uh, the drug uh, his daughter business was legals. A, yeah, a pharma CEO. Yeah, she resigned three and years she has ago. No, yeah, and she has no scruples about hurting poor people. Plain and simple. She jacked up the you price know, of epipens. Yeah, yeah. But so perhaps uh, you know by just saying to Joe Manchin, we we have to investigate, make sure everything was legal, and if everything was clean and legal, there's nothing, no problem with Joe Manchin and his family. But if there is any dirt. Maybe Joe would, would come around real quick if Joe Biden, yeah. would, who we see, he drags I, his feet. You know, this, this again, Ron, is the, you know, how, how, what new and creative ways can we figure out to beat up Joe Manchin? And, and I'm, I think that at the end of the day, that would be unproductive, um, how the United Mine Workers are asking Joe to reconsider. You know, that's the kind of stuff that we need to be doing. We need to be working on his allies. We need to be working on him. We need to be, you know, I think calling him out. I was pretty brutal on him. But, you know, if he can, you know, this is like I, I just read this thing from FreedomWorks where they said, you know, their greatest fear is that Manchin is going to try and get back in the good graces of Democrats by pushing voting rights legislation. It, I, that's my greatest hope. And and they're you know trying to mobilize people against that. So I don't want to destroy the guy politically. I mean, I think he's doing some, some of that to himself right now. But uh, and I don't want to send him into the welcoming arms of the Republican Party. But yes. I do think that we need to influence him. Ron, I need to move along. Merry Thank Christmas you for the call. Time. Thank you. Jerry in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Jerry, what's up? Hey, Tom, I just wanted to amplify or elucidate your commentaries about Spanish uh, radio mm-hmm. or Spanish language radio. This started out as an attempt by the Protestant evangelical churches to convert Catholics to their religion and toe the line for their religion, which has become a political force in the Republican Party and maybe the main political force of the followers in the Republican Party. Spanish language radio persists and it needs to be countered just as the widespread conversion of Latinos, which is the mission of the evangelical evangelical Protestants, is proceeding. Interesting. Interesting. I, you know, that it doesn't surprise me. I, I, I don't know enough about that um, particular that's battle why, that's being fought in the. Go ahead. It, that's that's why I wanted to elucidate it to you because you don't seem to have grasped 
where it started and what is happening. Yeah. My son uh, was uh, naval attache in Brazil and finally Colombia, and he has pointed out to me that this is a hemispheric uh, approach yep. to Latinos to turn them into evangelical Protestants. Now, the Catholic Church has not done a great job in retaining them. I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. But this is part of where it is coming from. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. I, you know, uh, uh, that's real interesting. I, let me, let me pod you. that. Let me learn more about that. Jerry, thank you. You just, you just fired off a whole bunch of brain cells, <laughs> but I don't want it, it to. It, it, it would be a long kind of rabbit hole road to go down what I, what I, I was know, just thinking I about. I know. That's, what but, I, that's all I meant to do, fire yeah. off some brains. Well, you did it. Jerry, thank you very much. I appreciate the call, and happy holidays to you. Lori in Ocala, Florida. Hey, Lori, what's up? Hey, Tom. Hi, everybody. Happy holidays. I want to talk about the enemy that Joe Biden and the Democrats have. Mm -hmm. The Democrats need to address the real enemy, and that enemy is the group of, mil of billionaires, the main beneficiaries of the $8 trillion in tax cuts since the 2001 explosion. Mm -hmm. The employees of the billionaires are the representatives in the House and the Senate that put on Republican uniforms. These are not members of the Republican Party. That party is an empty shell because they have no platform and they admitted it. The Republican posers who work for the billionaires have one job, make the billionaires better and richer. And we have to really address the billionaires. Forget the people that are in the positions that are pretending. We need to be right out there in their faces and we need to address that we know they don't care about people. They care about the billionaires. Yeah, I'm with you. We need billionaire reform. <laughs> Do something about the morbidly rich. I'm with you, Lori. I'm completely with you. We need to raise the top tax rate and we need to raise the, the uh, estate tax. I mean, we don't want those, those poor billionaire children to just get all that money and use it to buy drugs, do we? Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabberwocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde. All the folks who work on this program. And thank you to you for uh, participating with our program and spreading the good word and supporting our sponsors and our stations. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.